0: This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. Today I'm going to tell you guys about one of my favorite Michigan true crime stories but I'm gonna do things a little differently because there are two very different versions of this story and it's impossible to know which one is true because it happened such a long time ago and you cannot trust anybody, basically. Uh, I know which way I'm leaning, but I'll save my opinion until the end. So let's get into the story of the Dudgeon Swamp Murders. Uh, and one thing that I do want to real quick, mini disclaimer here, is that there are going to be some date discrepancies. I went with a source that I found to be the most accurate most of the time. But if I looked up five different pieces of information to get a date for one event, I was getting five different dates. So they all happened around the time frame. The exact date might not be correct on some of them, but I did my best to uh, snuff out what was correct and what wasn't. Okay, let's jump into it. White Cloud is located in West Michigan, about 50 miles north of Grand Rapids, on the banks of the White River. It's a small town with a population of just under 1,500 that borders the Manistee National Forest, which is over a half million acres of dense wilderness. Yes, a half million acres. So that means... (laughs) I wrote ears. That means ears. Um, I meant bears. I forgot the B. Um... (laughs) But ears too, I guess that might be a little more scary than bears. Uh, Bears, cougars, Bigfoot, the Michigan Dog Man, which that's a whole story that we may or may not ever get into. White Cloud is known as a trail town for its many hiking trails, parks, and outdoor recreation areas. But in the early 1900s, it was not the woodsy wonderland that it is today. The area had been ravaged by loggers and wildfires and was a wasteland of burned out stumps and unfarmable land. It was actually referred to as Michigan's stump country, which I imagine looked as gross as it sounds. So it was just a bunch of stumps everywhere. No trees, no nature, just torn up stumps all over. Gross. Uh, and that is when the Dudgeons came to town. In 1905, Charles and Alice Dudgeon purchased a 1,300-acre plot of land near White Cloud known by locals as Big Bear Swamp. With their five children, sons Lee, Wilmer, and Herman, and daughters Lola and Meady, the Dudgeons lived in a shanty while they built their family home, which was one of the ugliest, most ramshackle, what in things that I have ever seen. The two-story four-bedroom home had floors made of rough ash board, crude thin walls covered with newspaper, a staircase so steep it was more like a ladder than an actual staircase, and the outside wasn't much better. Rough mismatched boards covered in tar paper and lathe made up the exterior. So basically they just picked up whatever they could find laying around the land and used it to buy a house is what it sounds like. It was a mess, and it was actually never completed, the construction of the house. But the Dudgeons still had a lot of land, which they referred to as the ranch. They bought livestock and started a lucrative breeding operation, and they were the first family in White Cloud to have an electric truck, which was apparently a big deal. And I had to look into this because this just sounded weird to me, but way back before, um, you know, teslas and smart cars and all of that uh, they had electric cars in the early 1900s and they were actually pretty popular before gasoline-powered vehicles took over so we started down the right path and then we kind of went the wrong way and fucked up the entire environment and now we're trying to get back to where we started sounds about right america sounds about right things weren't all easy breezy on the ranch though the neighbors were uh, as we would say today haters I don't know what they would have called them back in the 1920s, but to simplify what sounded like a pretty complicated situation, the dudgeons were basically viewed as trash with money. So the townsfolk saw themselves as being better than the dudgeons, but the dudgeons were the ones that had the money and the land and were more well off financially than most of the people in town. To add to these tensions, the dudgeons land, referred to by locals as Big Bear Swamp, I already said that, but I'll say it again because I wrote it again, had long been used by locals to graze their cattle. So when Charles Dudgeon put a fence up, which he only did to keep his own livestock from escaping, the neighbors were furious and so petty that they actually cut the fencing so that the Dudgeon's stock would escape, which they did. Uh, While the Dudgeons took pride in their ranch, spiteful locals actually began referring to it as the Dudgeon Swamp, which is what it is still called today. So it went from Big Bear Swamp to the ranch to the Dudgeon Swamp. Some of the Dudgeon children went to school for a time, but none of them were what you would call well educated. Uh, the entire family had a reputation of being bullish and hard to deal with, as well as dangerously crazy. Their altercations with neighbors often turned physical. One major cause of drama was an 80 acre plot of land adjacent to the Dudgeon Swamp that Charles Dudgeon had purchased for his daughter Lola and her husband Frank Priest to live on. Not only did he buy it for them, but he put it in Frank's name, so he just gave it to him, no strings attached. And then, without consulting his generous father in law, Frank Priest sold the land to a man named Jake Terwilliger, who was one of those Dudgeon haters in town. Terwilliger legally obtained the land, so there was nothing the Dudgeons could do about it, but they feuded with him so violently that it often landed members of the Dudgeon family in jail. Even matriarch Alice was said to have broken a few of Terwilliger's ribs during one altercation. And let me tell you guys, I have seen photos of Alice Dudgeon, and I believe it. You want to talk about a she-tiger? My god. I'll post pictures of her on the website so you guys can see what I'm talking about. So the Dudgeons were trouble, whether it was of their own making or a result of the way they were treated by the community, or a little bit of both, it was just not a good situation. They were always in a feud with someone, they were all in and out of jail, and the rest of the town generally just did not like them. And that's why it's hard to determine if this next part is true. It was rumored then, and it is rumored now, that as a teenager, Meadey Hodel gave birth to two babies that were fathered by her own brothers. To hide the incest in the family when the babies were born, they were taken out to the Dudgeon Barn, clubbed to death, and buried. As you can imagine, there are no birth records for secret babies buried under old barns, so I'm unable to confirm or deny this, but it's mentioned pretty consistently in most of the retellings about the Dudgeons. Uh, so, you know, just make of that what you will. In 1920, two important things happened in the Dudgeon Family Saga. Family Patriarch Charles died. On May 20th, 1920, at the age of 68. It was later rumored that his wife Alice might have poisoned him, but when he died, nobody questioned it. So, again, any truth to it or just another rumor because everyone hated the Dudgeons, it's hard to tell. About that same time, a stumper by the name of Romy Doc Hodell came to town. Doc Hodell was born in 1891 in Ensley Township, Michigan, to David and Nina Hodell. He was one of seven children. He worked as a stumper, which is exactly what it sounds like uh, someone who rids land of stumps. So it only made sense for him to wind up in stump country, right? In 1920, at the age of 29, he moved to White Cloud, where he met the Dudgeons. He was immediately smitten with 18 year old Meaty, who was more than 10 years his junior. Even at her young age, some would argue that Meaty was damaged goods. She just lost her father, she was possibly involved in an incestuation. Jewish... <laughs> I was never going to make it through an article like this without some mess up. Sorry, guys. Um, Start that sentence over. She was possibly involved in an incestuous relationship with one or more of her own brothers. She'd allegedly birthed and lost two children and her family was widely viewed as the black sheep of white cloud. But she was petite, soft-spoken, Available. What more could a young stomp, stomper <laughs> What more could a young stumper want in 1920? I promise I'm not going to let this one go off the rails, guys. That was the last one. Last one. On March 29, 1921, Doc and Meaty were married. The couple was so poor that Meaty's brother Lee, who was possibly the father of one of her murdered babies, had to pay for the marriage license. To complicate matters further. Meaty was said to have an on-and-off relationship with a friend and co-worker of her brother's, a man by the name of Carl Sailors. Doc and Meaty moved over 20 times during their first year of marriage. 20 times? I moved a lot when I was young, but Jesus Christ, 20 times in a year. I guess, though, they were really poor, so they probably had, like, a couple pair of pantaloons, some bloomers, a pair of shoes to share between them. No, I don't know. Yeah, 20 times they moved. One of those times was to the Terwilliger farm, uh, which was that parcel of land that Meadey's dad had purchased and Meadey's brother-in-law had sold. So they actually had to pay to rent a house on their own land um, on a plot that Meadey's family had paid for in the first place. This also meant that they basically lived on the Dudgeon Swamp, just their own little piece of it. Doc and Meaty were in dire straits due to the fact that Doc's stumping business was failing when his father came to stay with them in January of 1922. So they met in 1920, they got married in 1921, they were poor as shit, they lived in a little shack on the Dudgeon Swamp that they were renting from someone besides their family, even though it was their family's land, and then Doc's family came to stay with them in the beginning of 1922. David Hodell was 67 years old. Recently separated from his wife and ailing after a recent stroke when he moved in with Doc and Meaty. His plan was to stay with them for a few months, then go spend some time with another of his children who lived a few miles down the road. So basically, I took care of you fuckers for the first 18 years of your life. Now you guys are going to take turns taking care of me. Sounds fair. On February 4, 1922, David Hodell was carrying firewood from the house to the shed when he collapsed in the yard. Neighbors heard Meady screaming for help as she ran to her father-in-law's aid, but it was too late. David Hodell was dead. The town doctor was sent for. He arrived, took note of David Hodell's age and failing health, and determined he died from either a heart attack or apoplexy which today we call a stroke probably because nobody can pronounce the word apoplexy and I am most likely pronouncing it wrong. David didn't have so much as a suit to be buried in. So Lee Dudgeon, Meady's brother, donated his suit jacket. Doc Hodel donated a pair of his work pants and the undertaker donated a shirt. It's really fucking sad. David Hodel was buried in a modest ceremony, but he wouldn't stay buried for long. Because less than three months later, there would be another death at the Dudgeon Swamp. Things did not get better for Doc and Meaty following David's death. They had to move back into the Dudgeon Shack with Meaty's mother and brothers. Doc had a debt of eighteen hundred dollars coming due to a creditor with no way to pay it. Meaty had begun spending time with her ex-lover Carl Sailors again, and Romy was extremely jealous. I would imagine that he was probably jealous of Meadie's brothers as well. I'm sure that he'd heard the rumors about her alleged relationships with them, since the people around town loved to spread rumors about the Dudgeons. Unable to find stumping work in White Cloud, Romy contracted a job in the town of Wooster, which was only about 17 miles from White Cloud. Wooster. It sounds like a town you would find in Boston, not in northern Michigan, but okay. I wonder if it's still there. I should have looked that up. That's not for you guys to do. That's for me to do the work, right? Uh, so to you and me today, a 20-mile commute to work sounds like nothing, but it was enough of a trek for Doc that he planned to stay in a shack on the property where he would be doing the stumping, and he wanted Meedy to go with him. But she didn't want to leave the shack that she lived in with her brother lovers to go stay in a different shack with her husband. <laughs> Who would, right? Uh, There was tension between them as Romy prepared for the trip, and it all came to a head on May 5th, 1922. And just a quick side note, because I realize as I'm reading back through this that I'm kind of interchanging the names Romy and Doc, but it's the same person. His nickname was Doc, his real name was Romy, and Romy and Meaty, by the way, very cute. Romy and Meaty, Hodel. Yeah, anyway, back to the story. Romy had arranged for Meaty's brothers, Lee and Herman, to use their new electric truck to help him take his and Meaty's belongings out to the farm in Worcester. But Meaty still didn't want to go. So she and Romy were in the midst of a lover's quarrel when her ex, Carl Saylor, showed up. Now, can you just picture the situation, okay? So it's Romy and Meaty, they're married, they're fighting, They don't get along according to a lot of accounts. Her two brothers who she may or may not have born children for and then their friend who is her ex-boyfriend who she might currently be cheating on her husband with. Like seriously it is the most messed up story. So Carl Saylor shows up only to make things so much worse Romy flew into a rage when he saw him, and he wound up getting into a fistfight with not only Carl Sailors but with Lee and Herman as well. It was three against one, so of course Romy lost. Uh, beaten, broken, and dejected, he began talking to Meaty in great detail about how he wanted them to die together. Uh, then he changed his tune, and he suggested that she go see a divorce lawyer. And he also confessed to her that he feared the police were after him. He said that over a decade earlier, he'd helped bury the body of a woman named Nellie Reynolds in his hometown of Ensley Township and that a road crew had recently uncovered the body. He said that officials were investigating and it would only be a matter of time before they would come for him. So, uh, you guys know me. I'm, I look up every aspect of a case I can find. I could find nothing at all about this supposed Nellie Reynolds murder or suspicious death at all from that time frame. So if you find something, let me know. But the only reason I don't have more backstory on that is because I simply couldn't find it. So all of this happened over the course of one afternoon, by the way. They went from packing up their shit to move, to fighting, to him physically fighting with her brother-lovers and her lover-lover to him wanting them to die together to him wanting a divorce to him possibly being a murderer or involved in a murder that police were investigating. That's a lot. That's a lot there, Doc. So after a very, very strange day full of the most drama, Meady and Doc slept in different beds at the Dudgeon Shack that night. Uh, Meady slept in bed with her mother and Romy slept in a bed with Lee. Can you even imagine anything more humiliating than someone kicking the shit out of you and then having to sleep in the same bed with them that night? (laughs) I don't know what was going on out there at the Dungeon Swamp, but it was all weird. The next day, May 6th, 31-year-old Romy awoke to a bleak world, literally and metaphorically. It was raining so hard he couldn't work. He was broke and he had an $1,800 bill due. His unfaithful wife, to whom he'd only been married for a year, wanted to leave him and was cheating on him with one if not several people, uh, if you count her brothers and the police were after him for a murder he'd been involved in in some capacity. He told the dudgeons he was going to head out to his barn on the Ter- I'm just set up for failure with a name like Terwilliger honestly. He told the dudgeons he was going to set out to his barn on the Terwilliger farm. He'd not been able to continue renting the house, but he had still rented a barn. So they lived in the house and had a barn for a little bit. Couldn't afford the house anymore, but they kept the barn because he needed—he had horses that he needed for his business. So he goes out to the barn to feed the horses. And uh, Alice, Meaty's mom, told him that breakfast would be waiting for him when he returned. But he didn't return. And after a while, Lee and a man by the name of Ronner, Ronert? <laughs> A man by the name of Robert Bennett, who worked for Romy, went looking for him. They found him in the barn, swinging from the rafters by a leather harness. There was no question that he was dead. They took a hysterical meaty into town to notify officials just after noon. When a crew led by Sheriff Noble McKinley traveled out to the Terwilliger barn, they noticed some things that just didn't seem right. For one, Romy's feet were touching the ground and his knees were bent. It's hard to hang yourself when all you have to do to stop it is stand up. He had a black eye and he had cuts all over his face, although that was explained as having happened the day before during his fight with the Dudgeons and Carl Saylor. Perhaps the most telling piece of evidence was the mud and dirt on his back and shoulders as if he'd been laying down prior to being hung. During the post-mortem examination, a team of doctors found a small wound on the back of Romy's head near the base of his skull. They determined that he'd not died by hanging, but by a blow to the back of the head that caused instant death, even though two suicide notes had been found in the Dudgeon home. Romy's family insisted that the suicide notes were not in his handwriting and were further proof that he had been murdered by the Dudgeons. One of the notes read, Mita, when you read this, I will be no more. Don't look for me as you will never find me until it's too late. You know I told you I would rather be dead as to see you go wrong one who loves you, Doc. So why would he say that you'll never find me if his plan was to hang himself in his own barn, which is exactly where he told everybody he was going? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, The second note said, dearest meaty, I cannot write words to the effect that I want to, but tell my mother not to feel bad for me or you either. I left a note in my book for you, but my emotions has changed since then, so I am writing you this. Please don't marry Carl Sailors. my last request. One who gives his life for you, Doc. Weird. This is weird. Uh, Romy was buried the next day. Tensions were so high between the dungeons and the hotels that police frisked mourners at the funeral for weapons. The day after that, Romy's hired hand, Robert Bennett, one of the men who'd found the body, was arrested for Romy's murder, but he was quickly released because police had absolutely no evidence on which to hold him. The talk around town was that those crazy Dudgeons were responsible, not only for the death of Romy Hodel, but also for the death of his father a couple months earlier. So something that hadn't even been questioned when it happened now that Romy's dead too, they're going back and saying, wait a minute, they're both dead. They both died within a couple months on the Dudgeon Swamp, so the Dudgeons must have killed them both. Police investigated and questioned the Dudgeons on many occasions, but no further arrests were made. And the town folks had town folks, no, the townfolk, and the townfolk had a big problem with that. Uh, but it was nothing that a little vigilante justice couldn't solve. On July 30th, 1922, nearly three months after the death of Romy Doc Hodel, Lee and Herman Dudgeon were out on a job when they were met on the road by a posse of 19 vigilantes. I imagine them with torches and pitchforks, uh, but what they actually had were guns and ropes, so much more dangerous. Nooses were tied around the brothers' necks, and they were both hung from a maple tree near the local schoolhouse, uh, which would from then on out be called the Hanging Tree, the Dudgeons were beaten and tortured. Every time the nooses were tightened around their necks, they agreed to confess. But once the nooses were loosened, they would refuse. To hear the Dudgeons tell it, this went on for quite a while. But according to the angry mob, it took them less than five minutes to obtain confessions from the Dudgeon Brothers, the town's justice of the peace slash undertaker. So he served. Uh, he was a man of of many hats, or at least a man of two hats. He was summoned to the schoolhouse to lay witness to a written confession that claimed Robert Bennett, Romy's employee, had killed his boss and then threatened the Dudgeons with violence if they didn't help him hang the body in the Terwilliger barn and make it look like suicide. Robert Bennett was arrested a second time, and the Dudgeon brothers were released. They returned home to Alice and Meaty bloodied and bruised. They both had black eyes and rope burn around their necks. Lee had a broken nose, um, so they were a mess. And when the townsfolk found out that the Dudgeons had been released from custody, they were pissed. Alice was so concerned for her family's safety that she went to the police and demanded protection. Meanwhile, this lynch mob is rallying their troops for another attack. Realizing that they were out of their depths, the White Cloud Police Department contacted the Michigan State Police in Lansing asking for assistance. But this would only make things so much worse, you guys. So much worse. Lee and Herman were again arrested, this time as accessories to murder. The brothers stayed in jail by choice this time so that they would be safe from the angry mob out to kill them. On August 8, 1922, the Michigan State Police officers borrowed two white bedsheets from the wife of the local sheriff. That night, after midnight, the dudgeons were taken, one by one, out to the Terwilliger barn where Romy Hodel had died. Lee and Herman were beaten, tortured, and tormented by the ghost of Romy Hodel, which was really just a fucking police officer wearing a white sheet and moaning in weird voices. Yes, you guys, that's, (laughs) that is why they borrowed the sheets from the sheriff's wife so that they could wear them and pretend to be the ghost of Doc Hodel. Both brothers eventually gave the confession that police wanted. They said that Meaty and Alice had killed Romy Hodel and they'd helped to cover it up after the fact. Armed with this confession, it was Meaty's turn for the ghost barn. When she was confronted by the ghost of her dead husband, she confessed to putting poison in her father-in-law's coffee because he was such a care and a pain, and then she confessed to the murder of her husband. She claimed that she'd poisoned his coffee as well, but the poison only made him sick and didn't kill him, so while he was too sick and weak to defend himself, her mother picked up a rolling pin and beat him to death with it. Meaty confessed that while her brothers were staging the suicide in the Terwilliger barn, she was forging Romy's suicide notes. When interrogated by the ghost of Romy Hodel, Alice Dudgeon confessed to bludgeoning him with a rolling pin and to knowing that her daughter had poisoned both Romy and his father. Both Hodel graves were exhumed, and it was said that David Hodel had enough strychnine in his system to kill a dozen men, while Romy showed signs of strychnine poisoning as well. All four members of the Dudgeon family were put on trial, twenty year old Meady for the murder of David Hodell, fifty seven year old Alice for the murder of Romy Hodell, and twenty eight year old Lee and eighteen year old Herman as accessories to murder. They were all found guilty. Media and Alice, it should be pointed out, were found guilty by all male juries because of fucking course they were. During the trials, their family home was burned to the ground. Lawyers for all members of the Dudgeon family filed appeals on the ground that you cannot obtain a fucking confession by pretending to be a ghost. And all but one member of the family was granted a new trial and a change of venue to somewhere a little less psychotic. Lee and Herman were both found not guilty at their second trials and both of them hightailed it out of white Cloud so fucking fast and they settled instead in Muskegon. Alice Dudgeon's second trial ended in a hung jury and she was released after serving only two years of a life sentence. She also relocated to Muskegon. Only Meadey remained behind bars and that was because her lawyer, who had been her middle school chemistry teacher, missed the deadline to file an appeal by one day. Meadey became known in the media as the Child Bride of Stump County. She served 27 years of her life sentence before being pardoned by Governor G. Menon Williams in 1949. And people were outraged about this because it was kind of an all or nothing, right? Like the family was either a family of murderers or they weren't. You said that all four of them did this thing and then you later let three of them out and kept her in prison for almost 30 fucking years. So... Bullshit? Yes. And this is the version of the Dudgeon Swamp murders that I've always known and have wanted for so long to share with you guys because it's a fucking insane story, right? Like a swamp with incest and murder and secrets and torture and buried babies and crazy, crazy, crazy. But. While I was getting into the research to actually do an episode on it, I found a series of articles written by a reporter for the Detroit Free Press who actually attended the trials. His name was Eldon Small, and he actually painted a very different picture of what happened at the Dudgeon Swamp. Coming from the big city... It was easy for him to see White Cloud for what it was. It was a small community, cut off from the rest of the world, kind of doing their own thing without any regard for social norms or right and wrong. The town of White Cloud hated the Dudgeon family. That was clear. And the reason for that, again, was because they were widely viewed as trash with money. Strange, uncouth, troubled. You guys like that word, uncouth? I try to throw a fancy one in there. Here and there. Um, but they had more money than their neighbors. So it was just jealousy and resentment, flat out, was the reason that people didn't like them. There was never any actual evidence that Meaty birthed babies fathered by her own brothers or that those babies were murdered and buried beneath the barn. I mean, is it possible? I suppose, but it's just as possible that it was nothing more than a rumor. Just like there was no proof or legitimate claim that Alice Dudgeon had killed her husband. And no one questioned that the death of David Hodell was due to anything other than natural causes, including his own family. At first, it's true that a medical expert did testify at the trial that his body was found full of strychnine, But several other medical experts testified for the defense and discounted those findings. And here's something interesting. So the same medical expert testified that Romy had been poisoned as well. So the state used the same expert for both trials. Here's my evidence that Romy was poisoned. Here's my evidence that David was poisoned. And in Romy's trial, the judge, the same judge that presided over the trial for the murder, the murdery, the murder of Doc Hodell. You guys, if I can't even say the word murder, um, this whole true crime podcast thing is not gonna work out for me. So let me just let me start that over. So one judge presided over both trials, the same judge, um, for David Hodell's murder, for Romy Hodell's murder. And the state used the same expert to say that both men had been poisoned. In the murder of David Hodell, that was the only evidence presented as proof that David was murdered was the, the strychnine evidence. That was what was used to convict media of his murder. But in Romy Hodel's murder, the same judge threw out the evidence of the possible poisoning because he said it was unreliable. So how does the same doctor, essentially investigating the same murder, right? Because we're saying the same people did both. How does the same doctor conduct tests on both bodies and you can use one to convict and the other one gets thrown out because it's unreliable. That sounds like bullshit to me. And then there were the confessions. Um, So I guess the only other evidence to convict Meedy besides that bullshit strychnine evidence was her confession, which she gave in the middle of the night, alone in a barn with dozens of police officers and the ghost of her dead husband screaming in her face. As soon as she was out of that environment, she recanted her confession. Uh, The confessions made by Alice, Lee, and Herman were all thrown out at their second trials because obviously you can't fucking obtain a confession that way. So only Meaty wasn't granted a new trial in a town that wasn't poisoned and prejudiced against her through no fault of her own. So when you really consider that the only two pieces of evidence that David Hodell were murdered were the bullshit medical findings and the bullshit confession, it looks a lot more likely that a frail, elderly man carrying heavy firewood through the snow in the middle of winter probably just dropped dead of a heart attack or a stroke like the coroner originally thought. And as for the murder of Romy Hodell, witnesses to when the Dudgeons arrived in town to report the death described Meaty as hysterical and despondent. Meaty was a simple girl. She was not clever or diabolical enough to convincingly fake such heartache. It was said that during the trial, Meaty seemed cold, removed, emotionless. But this reporter was there, in the courtroom, this Eldon Smalls that wrote these articles. And he said that the entire courthouse was packed to the gills with people who hated Meaty, who glared at her and shouted horrible names and even hissed at her. Like, they hissed. Pissed at her like she was a witch or something, um, so she checked out mentally because she had to, not because she didn't care, not because she was a cold-blooded murderer, but because she had to black out all that was going on around her to try to keep some sense of sanity. And as far as the evidence in Romy's case, now. This one I'm a little more conflicted on because there are a few things that gave me pause. Obviously, the fact that his knees were bent and his feet were touching the ground. I mean, I I suppose that after he died, his weight eventually weighed down the harness enough to make that happen. But that still seems a little suspect to me. And then the dirt on his back. Could he have just been wearing a dirty shirt? Yes, but it was described as being located in a way that it, it looked as though he'd been drugged uh, across the ground on his back. So this series of articles that I read by Eldon Smalls actually did nothing to try to explain any of that away, but there was other crucial evidence that was discounted, like the wound on the back of Romy's head near the base of his skull. This was positioned near where the buckle of the harness would have been fastened and was not inconsistent with an injury that might have been caused by such a contraption. In fact, multiple experts testified that if that particular injury was caused by being hit with a rolling pin, there was absolutely no chance that it could have caused death. And those two forged suicide notes. While Romy's family testified that it wasn't his handwriting, an actual handwriting expert concluded that it was and that the notes were genuine. But this evidence was not allowed into the trial, which is crazy because it was the prosecution that chose this particular expert to analyze it. So the state sent these suicide notes to one of the most renowned experts on handwriting analysis in the country that worked on federal cases that was very highly respected. And they did it to strengthen their case and say, look at this. These are fake, right? And when the guy was like, actually, no, these are real. They were like, oh, well, we can't use them as evidence. And the judge, the judge sided with them. The defense then wanted them entered as evidence. And the prosecution was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. Even though, if it had been proved that they were fake, they absolutely would have entered the suicide notes into evidence. So, it's all a mess. It's all bullshit. The confessions, obviously, were all nonsense. Lee and Herman Dudgeon gave their first confessions with nooses tied around their necks. Objection, Your Honor. And the next round of confessions by the Dudgeon family were given under extreme duress while being tormented by a police officer dressed in a sheet in a desolate barn in the middle of the night pretending to be the ghost of the dead man. Again, objection, Your Honor. The police framed this as, the women were haunted by ghosts until they confessed. Like some sort of telltale heart situation where it was weighing on their consciences, but... consciences, Consciences. But the truth was the women were tortured by a fake ghost for hours until they confessed. So they weren't being haunted by a ghost in like an abject way, They were being tortured by a ghost in a very physical way, and that is quite a bit different. Also, all three of those Michigan state troopers who put the ghost of Romy Hodel play on were fired for their nonsense behavior. According to Eldon Small, every out-of-towner that attended the trials, reporters, law enforcement officials, medical experts, they were all appalled by the miscarriage of justice. They were all of the belief that David Hodel died of a heart attack or stroke and Romy Hodel took his own life. It was very clear to them what was happening. The townsfolk, the jury, and local law enforcement were so blinded by their hate for the dudgeons that they were going to lock them all up and throw away the key by any means necessary. Which is why, once the cases were taken out of Nuego County and retried in neutral territory, all of the dudgeons were granted their freedom. Media side, which, missing the appeal deadline, by one day, Again, the theory was that the Dudgeon family was in on these murders together. So when the others were found innocent at their retrials, she should have been just released by default. I know it doesn't work that way. That makes too much sense and our justice system makes no sense. So yeah, but still, bullshit. The Dudgeons all relocated to the Muskegon area, as best as I could tell. Alice died in 1935, 14 years before her daughter obtained her freedom, but Alice never stopped fighting for justice for Meady. Meady was allowed a furlough from prison to attend her mother's funeral, which she paid for with her prison wages, and Meady was eventually pardoned in 1949 when she was 47 years old. She took a job as a housekeeper at St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Gross Point, and she died just a few years later. She was buried in Muskegon with her mother. Lee and Herman Dudgeon were both able to rebuild their lives. Uh, They got married. They had kids, grandkids. Herman died in 1973 when he was 69 years old, and Lee died in 1977 when he was 83. Now, Lee is buried in Lakeside Cemetery in Muskegon. So if I had to guess, I'd say that's where Alice and Meady are as well, but I couldn't find any evidence of that. And I did not have time to go to Muskegon this week, so sorry, guys. Okay, so my sources for this episode. Uh, The first time that I actually ever heard about the Dudgeon Swamp Murders was an article that my friend John Robinson did for his Haunted Michigan series, uh, which you can find on the 99.1 WFMK website, and I will post a link to that on the website. And he got the information for the Dudgeon Swamp Murders from. Another friend, um, or should I say friends, are friends at Ruin Road who have a YouTube channel where they go around to Abandoned and Haunted, and I believe they have a true crime series that they just started, so they do a lot of cool stuff, and theirs is all in video form. They did a story called Incest, Murder, and Ghosts for their YouTube channels, and they actually went to the site of the Dungeon Swamp and the Cherwilliger Barn, which I don't intend to do because I'm scared of bears and ears. There was, what else? an essay by Lee Keppel called The David and Romy Hodel Murders, and there was the series of Detroit Free Fest articles written in April 1923 by Eldon Small, and then an article on a website called The October Project. Um, That article was called The Deaths of David and Romy Hodel, and of course, My Best Friends, Wikipedia, and Find a Grave. And that is the banana story of the Dudgeon Swamp Murders, or as I like to call it, Total Drama Island, which by the way, um, they do say that the swamp is super fucking haunted. Again, I wouldn't go check it out because bears, but that's it. Thank you guys for coming to my dead talk. All right. So now it is time for me to answer a listener question. This week I picked a question from Diana. Uh, who's a regular listener of the show. I picked this one because it's a little lighter and we've got so much dark going on right now and everything's scary and awful, so I wanted something that was just a little lighthearted. She actually asked me several questions, but I'm going to answer all of them here. She asked, "What is my favorite Fago Pop?" You, uh, you know you're from Michigan if you're talking about Fago and calling it Pop, right? Um so my favorite Fago flavor is Red Pop. I don't I would say it's been probably at least three or four years since I've had it. Uh, I loved it when I was a kid. And I remember, you know, I had rules as a kid. Not a ton, but enough. But not so many that I couldn't just simply fucking follow them. And as a mother, I feel this one so hard. Like, I don't think I've ever allowed Faygo to be a thing that we have in the house for my kids to get out and accidentally spill. Um... We had some red pop. We had a babysitter coming over. I think the red pop was bought for that occasion. You know, when a babysitter came over, you got pizza and pop for dinner. All that was asked of me was that I keep it out of the living room. I was maybe seven, eight years old. My mom had this big 19, late 1970s style braided rug in the living room that was like brown and cream colors. All she asked was that I not have Fago on her rug And what did I do but spill an entire glass of Fago all over that fucking rug while she was gone for like, (laughs) I don't know, dinner, a movie, something. They were only gone for a couple hours. I I feel bad about it now. I'm laughing because it was a million years ago and that rug is in a landfill somewhere now. But that was really shitty of me as a kid. Like, why? Why can children not just follow the most simple of rules? Don't take Fago pop on my rug have it in the kitchen, have it in the corner, have it outside, take it in your bedroom, take it into the basement, drink it in the bathroom. I don't give a shit. Just don't take it on my rug. And what do I do? I take it to the rug and I spill it everywhere. And yet, red pop is still my favorite. Uh, Diana's next question, what is my go-to candy? That would be hot tamales, even though they make my stomach hurt so bad. I love them. I love cinnamon candy. Oh, no. She specifically asked, what was my favorite go-to candy at Quality Dairy? My answer is the same, but I just needed to do a plug for Quality Dairy. Uh, My favorite Michigan Great Laker beach, hands down Lake Michigan, beach at Lake Michigan. I really do enjoy uh, PJ Hoffmaster State Park, which is in Muskegon. The thing I don't enjoy about it is that you have to walk down a long fucking hill to get there. Um, Grand Haven's a little bit more the walk down the hill to get there is not bad. The walk back up the hill after you've been in the water all day, terrifying. Grand Haven, also a good one, but it's always so busy there and so crowded. And the last couple times we've been there, we had bad luck tour. It was actually really cold on the beach or red flag days. So we went all the way there and then couldn't even get into the water. But Lake Michigan, I love. Favorite 80s show? My favorite show in the 1980s was Easily Punky Brewster. I loved Punky Brewster so much. I can, I remember every episode. I think I have it. I think I have Punky Brewster. That and Rags to Riches. Punky Brewster, Rags to Riches. Toss up between the two. Favorite Scooby Doo character? My favorite Scooby Doo character. Daphne because she was so fabulous and sassy I know I should say Velma because she was smart and did all the work but I have to be honest with you guys when I was growing up I was all about Daphne and the red hair which is probably why when I'm not being lazy and I dye my hair it's red I don't do the little neckerchiefs though that's not my style and She-Ra or Rainbow Bright I refuse to choose I loved She-Ra. I loved Rainbow Bright. I was actually Rainbow Bright for Halloween one year in this costume that my grandma made that was fabulous, and I actually met She-Ra. There's a picture of me as a kid at, I believe, Meyer. Again, this, this line of questioning could not be more Michigan if it tried, um, but it was a promotion for new toys that were coming out or a new movie that was coming out or something, and I actually met She-Ra. So there's a picture of me as a little girl with She-Ra. I'll find those for you guys, and I'll post them on the website that's it. So if you guys have questions, send them to me. Uh, You can email them to me. You can send them to me in a Facebook message. Uh, Just let me know and I will add them to the list and I will get them answered as I can. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube under so Dead podcast. Uh Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash SoDeadPodcast. And be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your SoDead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way soon. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.